if this were a good old Protestant church this morning, here's how I would start this sermon. I would say, all right, everyone, get out your Bibles and open them up to the book of Esther. And of course, being a good old Protestant church, we would know exactly where the book of Esther is right after Nehemiah, right? And we would start in such a way. We would say, this happened in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, chapter one, verse one. There we go, right there. The same Ahasuerus who ruled over the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Now, just imagine that for a moment. That is a huge swath of land. And we would continue the story in such a way, saying, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susha in the third year of his reign. So he's a relatively new king. And then we'd skip around the story, going back and forth, centering on verses. And I'd pick up on, you know, being a good Protestant preacher, I'd pick up on snippets of the story here and there from the book of Esther. I'd probably hone in on one specific verse and spend the next 20 or 30 minutes just talking about that one verse. But instead, I want to pick up where I left off this morning, right at the very beginning of the book of Esther, because the full story matters for us this morning. So in the days of Ahasuerus, and his name uh, varies depending on in, it's Xerxes, if you're, you're looking at the Greek, or Antaxerxes or Amaxerxes, it, it's all over the place, but Ahasuerus sounds pretty good to me. And there was a call, this king sent a call out in his third reign to all the nobles of the kingdom that he was going to host a great feast in the capital of Susha. And so this was indeed a vast and mighty land spanning over 127 lands, including Israel at the time. The temple of the Jewish people was 50 years destroyed. And so we find ourselves, at least the Jewish people find themselves in the diaspora, spread out amongst the kingdoms of the empires that came, that would fall, that would rise. And so anyway, this king, Ahasuerus, was the king of this mighty, some would call it a Persian empire. And he held a party that spanned 180 days. <laughs> That's quite a party there. And his queen, queen uh, his wife, Queen Vashti, she held a separate party for the women. And so on day seven of this 180-day party, and it's interesting how things always happen on day seven in uh, specifically Hebrew and Christian scriptures. The king was merry with wine. That's the language that we find in some of the old translations. And this is a really nice way of saying that the king was on day seven of an intense bender, drinking and eating nonstop. And so he demanded that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear before the noblemen that were still partying and drinking nonstop to, as the story goes, display her beauty, wearing her crown and to dance for them. Now, there's some debate over what this request actually was uh, between rabbis and, of course, to, uh, 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 Christian commentators on, on such verses in the book of Esther. Uh, but let me just sum up every single point that's ever been made about what happened here with Queen Vashti and her husband. There were no good intentions here for Queen Vashti. And so knowing this, Queen Vashti refused to obey her husband. And the king was infuriated. And in due time, she was dethroned. Some say she was executed for taking a stand against her husband. Uh, but once the king was sobering up and the party had ended, he missed his wife. 
And so with the help, help of his advisors, they orchestrated a search throughout the kingdom for a new wife. Uh, many commentators call this the first great beauty pageant in biblical history, right? It was almost like Miss America pageant, one, uh, a great book called The Good Book. Uh, it calls it the first great Miss America pageant here. And a man named Mordecai, a Jew, suggested his cousin Esther. He had raised her as a daughter and knew her to be pious and dutiful person, and she didn't want to be queen. But as you probably picked up here, women had little power in this kingdom. And so she had no choice. She appeared before the king, not bothering to play along with the pageantry. She absolutely refused. Other women wore their finest jewelry and clothing, and Esther arrived as she was. She didn't bother to dress up for the king. And yet the king fell in love with her. And in due time, Esther became the new queen. Knowing that it was dangerous to be a Jew in Persia, Esther kept that to herself. And the king, he was relatively kind to Esther. He's much kinder than he was to Vashti. There were no scandalous feasts or demands to show off her, her beauty to the nobles. And Mordecai, Esther's cousin, uh, he became an advisor to the king. And they both kept their Jewishness to themselves. And so Mordecai is an interesting person to look at here. He loved to spend his free time by the gates to the palace. And for me, I imagine this was sort of the ancient Persian version of people watching at the airport. And so one day he overheard two men, overheard two men talking about a plot to kill the king. And he went to his cousin and told her that uh, what he had heard. And she in turn went to the king and guards investigated and they found out the plot to be true. And for this Mordecai earned great respect throughout the kingdom for overthrowing this plot to kill the king. And also around this time, one of Ahasuerus' advisors, Haman, was elevated to the position of prime minister. He was known for his hatred of those who, who were not, Jew, uh, not Persian, especially the Jewish people. That seems to be the case in a lot of these biblical stories, right? And the king so favored his prime minister, he issued a decree that everyone must bow down before Haman when he passed by or entered into a room. And this made Haman quite proud. He wore priestly idols around his neck and he relished, relished the adulation. And so one day while Haman was walking through the gates of the palace, he passed by the crowd and there was Mordecai, people watching as usual. That seemed to be his favorite hobby. And everyone bowed except Mordecai. And so remember Mordecai was a Jew and as he understood it, bowing to any man, especially one who wore symbols of another God around his neck was a form of idolatry. And so Haman demanded to know why. And upon learning that Mordecai, he finally admitted he was Jewish. Haman decided to use his new pow newfound power to exact his hatred on the, on the Jewish people. He convinced the king to allow him to kill the Jewish people, weaving tales about their plots uh, to subvert the empire. And so Haman took lots and he cast lots to determine on what day he would enact his plan. And so ever the people watcher, Mordecai learned of Haman's plan. And he again went to his wife, Queen Esther, and, and she went to the king. And it's at this point, Esther finally reveals her Jewish identity to the king. And the king truly loved Esther and realized that any harm to the Jewish people would be devastating to his wife. Now, there's more to the story, of course, than I'm telling you, right? It wasn't as simple as Esther convincing the king. There were small feasts that she held with Haman and Mordecai in attendance. And each time Mordecai refused to bow to Haman. And this led to Haman erecting a gallows out in front of the palace. 
And Esther told the king to remember that Mordecai saved his life. And that is when she revealed her Jewish identity in the story. And upon learning that Haman erected gallows outside of his own palace to kill one of his most beloved advisors and cousin to his wife, he ordered that Haman be executed at the very same gallows. Now the story gets complicated here, right? All these stories tend to happen this way, but it boils down to this. The king gave permission for the Jewish people to seek out the allies of Haman and fight back. Esther inherited Haman's estate, and on the day Haman originally selected to persecute the Jews, they won. They fought back against his allies, and they won. And the story ends in battle, but also in celebration. Mordecai and Esther establish a holiday, and they call it Purim, which means the Festival of Lots, named after the very lots that Haman cast to decide whether to purge the Persian Empire of the Jewish people. Now, You'll, you hear this story from me, this from me often. I love this story. It's a fascinating story. It's got patriarchy, subversion of patriarchy, murderous plots, devoted spouses, villains, uprising, too much partying, plot twists, and everything in between. And it's a quick read, too. It's just, it's just a handful of pages in the Hebrew scriptures. And it's one that will surely bring about anger, sadness, cheering for our heroes, Mordecai and Esther, and so this past weekend, how would our Jewish siblings look at this story from the book of Esther and celebrate the festival of Purim? Well, one thing is they would hold a masquerade. They would don their finest masks, right? And we're a little late. It just happened this weekend, but it's a holiday that for many Jewish communities is a lot of fun you find an almost carnival-like celebration with masquerading, costumes, baked goods, the recitation of the story, songs, plays, and so on. You're probably wondering, how on earth can I even see through this thing right now? But if you look up Purim pictures, sometimes you'll wonder if you're looking at Halloween photos instead. And while it's not exactly like Carnival or Halloween, they certainly share some of the characteristics, chiefly the festival atmosphere and the costuming. Now you might wonder, why a masquerade on Purim? Why costumes? Why baked goods? Why the celebration? This story ended with executions and battle. And before we find the troubling realities, before us, we do find the troubling realities that being a woman in the Persian empire was a life of oppression. And then we also find an oppressed ethno-religious group. And really, why are we reading the Hebrew Bible to look at this holiday anyway? Why did we start off with open your Bibles to the book of Esther? Now, those are good questions to ask. And if you grew up Jewish, you're probably realizing I left out a good chunk of the story. This is not a celebration of Purim, but rather a lifting up here. That's how Unitarian Universalists approach many traditions. We don't necessarily celebrate, but we lift up. And lifting up any holiday and recognizing that there can be great joy amidst struggle and uncertainty, and Purim certainly has that for us. And that sometimes that we need to celebrate. That's one of the big, big uh, lessons of Purim. We need to sing out joyously to declare that good and right won the day. And in 2021, we hope that happens without bloodshed or tyrants involved, though in many ways we came very close to that. But the story of Purim in the book of Esther is a fantastic story. And I really mean it. Give it a read if you haven't, right? It's quick, it's challenging. And at the end of the day, end of the day there is a story that you discover that is about justice, 
and celebration that we can learn from as Unitarian Universalists. The book of Esther contains one of the first recorded statements of anti-Semitism. When Haman in chapter three, verse eight speaks uh, of a certain people uh, scattered and dispersed who do not obey the king's laws and should not be tolerated. It's also a book about a drunken king and a hateful advisor who has an irrational dislike of the Jewish people. Knowing this, it, it should come as no surprise that one of the classic baked goods eaten on Purim are called Haman's ears. And they're really delicious. They really are. They come in all sorts of flavors, traditionally fig, but they're really good. And they're shaped like little triangles. But as for the masquerading, what does that have to do with anti-Semitism and the triumph of the Jewish people in this empire? Now it's theorized that the practice of masks and costumes come from Italian Jewish communities in the 1400s. And of course there were communities that had their own festivals with masquerading at the same time in Italy. But it wasn't something that Jewish communities just copied from their Italian, Italian friends. If you read the book of Esther, you'll notice something. And I have not studied uh, Hebrew scriptures since college, um, but had I also not done that, um, I think it would have taken a while to notice this reading the book of Esther, right? How many times you just sit down as a Unitarian Universalist and decide, I'm gonna read through this entire book of scripture from the Hebrew or Christian tradition, right? But what you will notice is that not once, not once in the book of Esther is God, the Lord, Yahweh, or Adonai mentioned. Not once. Now there's a, a if we want to be dig into Hebrew scripture studies here, there's a suffix attached to one word in the entire book, meaning fire. That could be meant to be God, but in the context of Hebrew, it means a big fire, not a God fire, right? And so not once in that entire book is God mentioned. And it's only one of two books in the Bible where that happens. The other one is the canticle or the song of Solomon. And so Esther is a completely human story, a completely human story of oppression, of patriarchy, of women subverting that patriarchy in the ways that they could at that time, of marginalized people fighting back, of tyrants and hatred reaping what was sown by themselves, and of celebrating. For Italian Jews who started the practice of masquerading, it was about recognizing that for them, as Jewish people, that the God they believed in didn't need to be named to be understood as working through their history. That this was a story of the hidden divine. Now, Unitarian Universalists don't use the word divine much. And really, I'm not going to say you should. I suspect for most of us, if we had to define the word divine, if we had no other word to use to describe a situation, it would likely be rooted in the here and the now. And it would be a rational reclaiming of the word. It would probably sound something like this. For Unitarian Universalists, the divine is an expression of collective power in the work of justice, building beloved community and living our values. So for Jewish communities, this notion of divine included their understanding of a God. And that divinity, that understanding of that word was hidden. Which leads to some interesting questions here for Purim that, that Jewish communities all across Lexington and the world celebrated this past weekend. And for us right here in this moment, how can we learn to see the divine or rather 
opportunities for being a voice of justice when confronted with oppression. For the Jewish people, the divine was working through the story of Queen Vashti and Esther, the oppression of the Jews and the hatred of Haman. Can we look at our society today and both look at oppression and those who would perpetuate it and discover opportunities to turn that narrative upside down? Now that question might seem easy enough, but can we also find the hidden divine or chances rather to build beloved community when faced with insurmountable odds? The relationship between Mordecai and Esther was one of care for each other and their community. And eventually the king was brought into this and his eyes were opened. Now, Ahasuerus would be assassinated later on in his reign. And really, we don't know if this actual story happened. That's not the important part. But what is important is that it illustrates that no one is lost to being brought into beloved community. Some will never choose love over hate, like Haman. And others might wade in cautiously, like the king. But where are possibilities for us and for our community and for those outside of it as well? And lastly, a really great question for us, where can we find the hidden divine or rather those moments of life where our values win the day? Where can we find a cause to celebrate and be joyous when that happens? Do we remember to celebrate life, to celebrate triumph, to celebrate our values? And it would be so easy to despair and to wallow. And this is why I love Jewish holidays in history. They honor the struggle. They honor the pain. They make it absolutely clear what is at stake in their history and in the present moment. And they also celebrate endurance, resilience, and grit. And the promise of trusting in something beyond ourselves. For the Jewish people, it was Yahweh and the story of the people of Israel. For Unitarian Universalists, we have options. It could be our shared history. It could be our values. It could even be that simple act of joining together as a unique people of faith on this common path. There are things, those, those things are bigger than me, just me and I and you, that act of joining in community. And for the Jewish people, it was about community. And it can be that way for us too. And so here in the story of Purim in the book of Esther, we find a story of human triumph. And Jewish communities for thousands of years have joined in retelling that story and celebrating. So the call for us is to celebrate. It's that simple, but it isn't that easy. The choices we are making as a congregation, that of digging deep into racial justice, of multiculturalism, environmental care, the collaborate, uh, to collaborate with relational organizing with organizations like BUILD, mentoring students at Cardinal Valley, and so much more. There is joy to be found in all of this. But it is an intentional practice. It's not something I can define for you. It's not something that we can just wake up and go, we're done, we're complete, right? It has to be intentional and weighted into by every single member of our community as best as they can in whatever way they can. And so how will you make celebration a part of your spiritual practice? And how will you bring that joy and celebration into this community, even amidst struggle, even amidst uh, the sorrows that we have in our lives? And so that is the call of Purim, of the Festival of Lots. May it be so. Blessed be. Amen.